The picture that you see, the pictures that you see on the screen, the one on the left taken on October 1st of 1997, a much younger Laura, and a newly born Lydia Grace McFarland. The day of her birth brought new life to our family, brought great joy and delight to our family, and we remember that day. Every single year, we celebrate that day. And actually, it's coming up in a couple of weeks that we get to celebrate what happened now 23 years ago. Every day after the day of her birth, Lydia has grown and she's changed. And she's grown and changed emotionally and mentally and intellectually and physically. And all those changes are also depicted in the pictures on the right. I, now, there were a lot of things that I wish I had done when I look back as a mom, but at least annually there was one picture taken and captured so we can see that, that physical projection that took place as she grew from a teeny baby on her birthday all the way to her high school graduation. And ladies, when we look at those pictures, when we see our own children, when we look out in our garden, when we look all around us, we know and we see the truth that living things are growing things. No one who met Lydia on October 1st of 1997 would expect to see her today looking exactly like she did way back then, 23 years ago. Her birth had a specific beginning point, and if we sort of plot that on a timeline, that's a date, that's a specific date, it's a snapshot in time. And then everything that happened following um, that, that, that kind of launched this lifetime of growing and changing. That's sort of the video of her life. One point in time, that definite date, and then the video of life growing and changing. And I think the picture of what we see in life being born and then growing and changing and transforming physically, it's also a picture of what happens to us spiritually. The gospel message brings us salvation, the second birth. We call it being born again in our Christian terms. And what comes after is that spiritual growing and living and changing. And the big churchy word for that is sanctification. Paul talks about the gospel in the key passage that we're going to unpack today. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Yes, we're just going to dig deep into just two powerful verses today. And in these two powerful verses, Paul makes it clear with this good news that we receive righteousness by faith. Faith is what brings about new life, and faith is what keeps us growing in this new life. So ladies, as is our custom, I want to invite you to stand in honor of God's word because that's what we do every single week. That's our tradition and our custom here. We want to remind ourselves that the authority that we look to always for all things is the holy word of God. Nothing is true because I say it or because your group leader says it or your, your neighbor says it. This is our authority. And we want to take everything that we believe and hold dear and the way that we live from the truth here. So I'm going to read Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For it is the gospel of righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Ladies, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. Would you pray with me as we begin? God Almighty, we thank you for the gospel. 
We thank you for the power and the truth and the, the peace and the comfort that this verse means, that brings to us, that, that, that comforts us and, and makes us rest in your grace, knowing that we are saved by grace alone in Christ alone. It is righteousness by faith, and we revel in that. Father, I pray that whatever we believe about the gospel, whatever thoughts we've never thought about the gospel, that today's teaching would stir all of our affections for the gospel, that it would challenge us to know it, to relish in it, and to believe it, to live it out in our lives. All for your glory, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the gospel brings good news. In fact, the, the definition of the word gospel is good news, and it's that amazing, glorious news that righteousness from God is not earned or deserved, but received completely by faith. And then that faith is what continues in our lives as we grow from faith to faith. That's why the scripture in this passage says it's by faith from first to last. Faith is what saves us. Faith is what sustains us. The gospel is both the good news that saves us by faith, and it's the good news that continues to grow us and conform us to the image of the one who saved us, the one who loves us best and loves us first. Paul described himself as set apart for the gospel in verse 1 of Romans. And so I think that begs the question for us to answer, well, what is the gospel? And again, definition, good news. And, and when you think about, well, what is good news? News is an after-the-fact report of what has happened. It's like reading the newspaper, what has already happened. It's, it, it's giving an account or a report of, of the events that have already transpired. And that's the truth of the gospel. It is a completed work. It's a done deal. The, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ makes that news, and it makes it good news. In the first century, there was no newspaper or no internet or no telephone or no satellite phone. So when a battle would be taking place, a runner would be sent to carry the news. If there was victory, he would run back to Rome, for example, to let the emperor know that he had won or conquered another nation. And he would run quickly to deliver that gospel, that good news. And so what we have, though, as Christians, is the good news that Jesus Christ has brought victory as well. But it's victory over, over sin and death. And because of our identity with him, we have that blessed, sweet hope for eternity. The faith that saves us is the faith that sustains us. But what I want us to realize is that the gospel is not just good news for that day. We don't just pray the prayer and know that we're in and our name is written in that book so when we get to the pearly gates, we're all in. The gospel is not just for that day. The gospel is very much for this day. The gospel is for the here and now. It gives us eternal life for then, but it shows us how to live and how to find peace and joy and victory this day and every day. It brings righteousness to us. And, and debt, righteousness is more than just being declared not guilty. If you owe someone a million dollars and that debt is forgiven or you declare bankruptcy, it brings you back to just even, just owing nothing and having nothing, just ground zero. So that would be, from, from, a, from a standpoint of sin, that would be being declared not guilty. But when you're being declared righteous, not only is the guilt and the shame taken away, but we, we are imputed to us the righteousness of Christ. It's like we've, been, we've had a million dollars deposited into our account. We have all these riches because of Christ's expense. The gospel also is not plan B. 
The gospel isn't just beginning in the New Testament. I think we, if we grew up in church or, or, or somehow we've camped out in the New Testament, there might be this tendency to think of, well, in the Old Testament, it was the sacrifices and it was the law and it was the Ten Commandments. But now that we have the New Testament, we don't even need to bother with that because this is the new plan. We couldn't keep that plan, so God came up with plan B. No, my friend. The gospel is present from beginning to end. The gospel is all over the Old Testament. God prophesied it there. The, the Habakkuk 2.4 is actually quoted in this passage in Romans 1.16 and 17. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, we have the proto-evangelism, the first gospel where God, speaking to the serpent, prophesied that he would bring victory by using the, the seed of the woman to crush his head. That was, a, that was the, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the forerunner. That was the gospel all the way back there in the Old Testament. The cross of Christ brought victory over death. Our Savior died for us and our Savior lives. So we then by faith, because of the gospel, can die to ourselves and live for him. Righteousness is that theme of Romans. It, it's, it's in fact used over 60 times in the book of Romans. The word that we see righteousness can also be translated just or justified. Paul wrote Romans in, in large part to challenge the Judaizers and the influence that they were having on Christians. They wanted to preach bondage to the law. Even when they became believers and they knew about Christ and they believed he was the son of God, it was just hard to pry their fingers off that old tradition and off keeping the law. They were law keepers. And, and he, he needed to refute the idea that you somehow needed to perform to please God. We live by faith. And yes, we obey God, but we do it because we love him. It's a response to his love for us. It's because he loved us first. It's not a requirement to, to, to be saved. We respond in loving obedience because we are saved. And Romans is going to help us get that. It's going to help us come to a greater appreciation and understanding of what righteousness by faith really means and, and the ramifications for how it means we should live and respond. Now today, as we focus on just these two verses in the book of Romans, the key passage of Romans, it's often referred to as Martin Luther's passage. Martin Luther found himself in a very hard place. He was a monk. He was a religious leader. He, he studied the scriptures. He knew uh, what serving God meant. He was trying to serve God, but he didn't really know God. He knew what the scripture said. He understood clearly righteousness and what God required, but, but knowing also that he couldn't do it, that he couldn't, he couldn't make the cut. He couldn't meet the high standard. And so the more he studied about God's righteous requirements and the more he found him, himself lacking, he began to resent God. He began to have these seeds of anger with God. He knew that it was an unattainable standard, and he began to just feel like it wasn't right that God would put up this high and holy standard knowing we couldn't meet it. And so it resentment grew to, to almost hatred towards God. The righteousness of God, that phrase was a huge stumbling block for Martin Luther. He just couldn't get past the righteousness of God and what was required of him and knowing that he couldn't meet it. And, and, and he, he read it and he understood it to mean that God is a righteous God and that God is going to deal with us righteously and that the human beings are unrighteous. He saw God 
as both righteous and angry. He knew what was required. He knew it was impossible for him to get there. And then he came to this passage. And then he read Romans 1, 16 and 7, 16 to 17, and he read it completely. And the light bulb finally went on, and Luther got it. Have you ever come to a verse that's familiar, that you may have even memorized as a child, that that you've read a hundred times before, and suddenly that powerful passage, it's like it's been in black and white before and now it's colorized. Or now it's in neon lights like on, on a marquee of the movie. And it's blinking and it's shining and you think, oh, how did I miss it before? This is it. This is the, the profound truth. Sometimes it happens with new verses like nuggets of gold that we dig up as we're searching and studying. But sometimes, ladies, it's verses that are very familiar, that are illuminated by the Holy Spirit, giving us that understanding, appropriating what we need just when we need it. That's what Romans 1, 16 and 17 did for for Martin Luther. The light bulb went on. He got it. It was a game changer. It was a life changer for Martin Luther. He finally realized that the righteousness of God was righteousness from God, that it was a gift, that we could never earn it or deserve it. It had to be given to us by God. And from that moment on, every day forward, Martin Luther embraced the gospel, and he never got over it. He never got over the truth that was found here. He received righteousness by faith. He became a man of God. He launched the Protestant Reformation that brought this truth to all of us and to to everyone that would listen to him. He devoted the rest of his life to living by faith and proclaiming that powerful message. By God's mercy and by God's grace, We are declared righteous by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, God's gift to us. Now that is good news. That's the gospel. And when writing about the experience later, here's what Martin Luther would say. I found myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. I broke through. He went on to say, and as I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting work. I pray, ladies, that as we study through Romans this year, that all of us break through, that we break through to a deepening respect and understanding and appreciation for righteousness by faith alone in God alone. And and we're going to spend now the rest of our time today dissecting this key passage of Romans that led to such a breakthrough for Martin Luther, and hopefully it might begin to awaken some breakthroughs for all of us as well. I think there are four key phrases in this powerful passage that I want to highlight. Uh, Not ashamed, power of God, salvation for all, and by faith from first to last. These, all four of these concepts or ideas or phrases are found, and I've highlighted them for you here in the passage on the screen. Not ashamed, power of God, salvation for all, and by faith from first to last. So we're going to discuss these sort of in reverse order because uh, now I've already already mentioned faith from first to last because it's faith that saves us at the moment of our rebirth or our being born again and then sustains us as we are transformed. It's also faith from first to last when we look at the scripture there from the Old Testament all the way to the new. So we're going to look at the phrase, first of all, salvation of everyone who believes, meaning the gospel is for all. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for Jew and for Gentile. 
I think the thing that Paul wants us to see by actually calling out and saying Jew and Gentile in the passage is that you're not justified by your bloodline. You don't have to have any particular pedigree. It, it doesn't depend upon your ancestry or what family you were born into or what country that you originate from. The gospel is a message that's for all people. It's for the religious and the non-religious. And so here he's, again, refuting those Judaizers that want to claim that the law must be kept. Righteousness by faith means faith plus nothing else. There are no additional requirements that you layer on top of that. God's plan all along, from the very beginning, for Old Testament and New Testament, was to redeem all people. His chosen people, the Jewish people, well, they were given the incredible privilege of being the light to the world. And they were chosen not because they were so special, but because really they were so insignificant. Because if they were something, maybe they would have gotten some of the glory for advancing the message. I think God from heaven looked out on the landscape of people and chose the, the most unlikely from the most unlikely place and decided to raise up for himself a group of people that would have the privilege of sharing the gospel. So <clears throat> there's, there's an old verse, a line from a song by Keith Green, one of the early contemporary Christian singers who says, so the next time God uses you, don't pay it any mind because he would use the dog next door if he were so inclined. <laughs> and, and I think of that often. When to think about, Lord, why do I get to teach? Well, because God likes to use unlikely people because that ensures that he gets all the, the glory for it. The gift of salvation was not exclusively for the Jewish people, but they would get the awesome privilege <clears throat> of delivering that gift, of being the light to the world. When God called Abraham all the way out in Genesis 12, 3, he said to him these words, all the people on earth will be blessed through you. I'm giving you the gift, Abraham. You're getting the light, and then you get to carry that light of truth. The gospel is for all. <clears throat> God's heart is for the nations. And it was that way from beginning to end. As you read through the scriptures, Old Testament and into New, you will see the word nations over and over again. You will see God's heart for the nations, always there from the beginning. The Jewish people had the privilege of carrying that truth forward. Next, we see that the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel, ladies, it doesn't just lead to power. It's not just the pathway to power. It doesn't just eventually result in power. The gospel is power. The message of the gospel, because we have heard it and because we know it, it, it may tend to sort of pale because it's so familiar. It, it tends to lose its wow factor for us. Yeah, we've heard about the gospel. It's one of our church words. I've memorized verses. I've heard pastors preach on it. It's familiar. But because we've heard it since we were children, it, it may have lost some of its spiritual punch for us. And, and listeners may hear the gospel and, and think, those outside of our faith, well, that's an interesting story, or, or that's a, an interesting theory, but not consider that it is power. It's way more than an idea or a suggestion or power. When my husband was a teenager, he told me this story, uh, being about maybe 15 years old, and they were out to eat at a restaurant in Florida, and his, his five-foot-nothing, as he refers to her little petite grandmother, was with them. And they had served a salad at this Italian restaurant, and there was this pepper on the plate. And he looked over at his five-foot-nothing grandma, this little petite woman, and she picked up that pepper and crunched into it and just continued the conversation and ate that pepper. And he thought, oh, I thought those were really spicy and 
that we weren't supposed to eat those. I've, I've always left my pepper on my plate. So, you know, this little cocky 15-year-old teenager thinks to himself, well, if my five foot nothing grandmother can bite into that pepper um, and just keep on, I'm going to eat that pepper. So he picks it up and he bites into that pepper. And in my husband's words, it lit him up. He was crying. He turned red. The inside of his mouth, his lips, everything was just on fire. And the, the waiter was running over and giving water, and he's trying to gulp water. And, of course, he was embarrassed on top of all that, and his grandmother's just looking at him. Well, I was reminded of that story when one of the commentaries that I studied shared, shared a story about a 5th century bishop who compared the gospel to a pepper. And I thought, oh, I have a modern-day story that parallels that. You look at a pepper, it might look to just to be cold and lifeless and nothing there, but you bite into that thing, and it brings power. It brings fire, and, and that's what the gospel is. The gospel brings power when we really appropriate it. Have you tasted the gospel? Have you let it grow stale in your life? Because the gospel is powerful. It's power over sin and death to save us. It's power for salvation for that day to, to save us when we step out of time and into eternity. But it's also powerful enough, ladies, to change this day. Have you experienced the life-changing power of the gospel? Power to save you, power to help you live victorious lives, power to enable you to experience victory over sin. Are there besetting sins that you've struggled with in your teenage years, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, all the way up into your senior years? Are there besetting sins that you need to surrender to the Lord and allow the power of the gospel to change? Have you relied upon the power of the gospel to close your mouth? Are there times that words just bubble up and they want to come out and then the Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel, just says, just be quiet, just be quiet. Have you experienced the power of the gospel to open your mouth, to know that there's a message and you have the heart palpitations and in your introvert self you just can't get it out, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel, you can share those words of truth, not because it comes from you, but because of the Holy Spirit. Has the power of the gospel helped you love unconditionally? Has it helped you turn the other cheek and turn the other cheek? Not because you want to keep getting slapped, but you want to hang in there long enough to receive that kiss on the cheek from that person that is abusing you and, 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 and challenging you and angry with you. Has the gospel allowed you to release grace? Has it, has it enabled you to show kindness and goodness and faithfulness even when people mistreat you and are unkind to you? Has the gospel enabled you to be joyful even when you're unhappy? Do you ever think about that? All those fruits of the Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And we can be unhappy in our circumstances and simultaneously be filled with joy. That's the power of the gospel inside of us. Paul opens verse 17 with these words. This is our fourth item I want to unpack from this passage. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that, that's a powerful declaration. And we can almost hear Paul, this, this strong type A personality that we saw who he was with as Saul, going around on his religious, in his religious deal, almost as a religious terrorist and speaking what he thought was the truth. But now that same personality being turned in an opposite direction towards the truth, proclaiming Christ. And he's, I can just hear him saying with boldness, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
and in declaring that he's not ashamed, I think Paul is suggesting here that there's some reason that someone might feel shame when it comes to the message of the gospel. And so we ask ourselves the question, how could the gospel bring shame? What could possibly make anyone feel ashamed of the gospel? Well, we go back to historical examples with Habakkuk, 600 years before Paul was speaking. This is the passage that's quoted in our, our passage, in our key passage here at the end of verse 17, when it says that the, the, um, that the righteous will live by faith. That's a direct quote from Habakkuk 2.4. Well, what was going on if we go back and study Habakkuk? Habakkuk was God's prophet to the people. And if you study the Old Testament, you know that it's a series of cycles of the people following and obeying God and then falling away and going their own way. And this was at a time in history when he was the prophet that God's people were very far away from God. There was rampant wickedness. And so in chapters 1 and 2 of the book that bears his name, Habakkuk is crying out to God. And, and he's basically telling on all these people. And he's saying, God, look what they're doing. And, and why aren't you acting, God? Why aren't you doing something about all this? Look what your people are doing. And so perhaps Habakkuk was ashamed that God was allowing all this wicked behavior to continue, that he wasn't stepping in and stepping up and behaving like God should behave. And Habakkuk is crying out, and God responds finally. And what God says to Habakkuk is, Oh, I'm going to do something, Habakkuk, in my time. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to use a nation even more wicked than the Israelites, and I'm going to use them to punish Israel. I'm going to bring on the Babylonians, and they're going to experience the consequences of, of their sin. Well, then Habakkuk is appalled. And now he's railing against the injustice. First he's mad because God isn't acting, and now he's angry because of the way God is. And he says, this is unjust. Why would you do that? Why would you use a nation worse than us to punish us? And God responds with the passage that we read today. Trust me, he says. Live by faith. You know, like Habakkuk, sometimes we too might feel embarrassed or ashamed or, or at least disappointed when God doesn't act or, where, or, or, or show up or behave where and when that we would like him to act. That might be a reason that historically and even in modern day that someone might feel ashamed of the gospel. Well, moving on to Rome. Paul's contemporary. What's happening in Rome right then? Well, Claudius is the emperor. He's on the throne in Rome. And, and uh, during this particular time, because of claimed disruptions in Rome by the Christians, well, Claudius just issues a decree, and he's going to banish all the Christians, all the Jews from Rome. So all the Jews are kicked out of Rome, and, and actually that's how Priscilla and Aquila, do you remember their story from Acts 18? I love to, to share about Priscilla and Aquila when I talk about mentoring others. That's how he met them. They were Jews kicked out of Rome and ended up in, in uh, Corinth with him, but that's a story for another day. But there could be no small degree of shame being associated with being a refugee. Because who wants to be labeled an enemy of the state? Who wants to be looked down upon like you did something so bad you got kicked out of your own country? So, so, and of course Rome in that day, Rome was all about power and money and prestige. You know, maybe there's nothing new under the sun. So, so that banishment and that persecution that was experienced then, that could be cause for shame. You don't want to be associated with something like that. And by the way, if Christians then thought that the behavior of Claudius was bad, they hadn't seen anything yet because Nero's coming. 
And so they would probably love to have Claudius back by the time Nero gets on the throne, uh, just as a little side story. Okay, well then let's talk about people today. What could bring shame for the gospel to us in modern day? And so I have a few ideas. There might be others that you would add to this list. First of all, when bad goes unpunished, when bad people just get away with doing evil things, we can respond like, uh, like Habakkuk did to God. Um, and maybe we can sort of feel, maybe we don't confess it, or maybe we don't label it, but maybe in our heart of hearts, we might realize that we've been a little embarrassed or ashamed that, that God has allowed evil to prevail or to go unpunished. Uh, or, or don't we at least know of someone who has been ashamed or even angry when God is silent or God allows evil to continue. You've all probably known someone who said, well, why would a loving God allow this? Or if he has the power to act, why doesn't he do something? Of course, presupposing that you, in your humanness, know what he should do or how he should be acting. Just the, the irony of all that. Or when God doesn't act or God is silent, it, it can make us feel no small degree of awkwardness. Uh, somehow we need to defend God. God doesn't need defended by us. God is strong enough. He is God Almighty. Um, I think sometimes um, the gospel can be bring shame to those moral good girls in our lives. Uh, the moral good go- girls are those good people, the ones who check all the boxes and do everything right, uh, the ones who live the good life. They even brush their teeth twice a day so they never have a cavity, right? They treat other people well. They never cheat on their taxes. They set their cruise control for three minutes, three miles under the speed limit so they're never going to have any chance of getting a ticket. Um, th- these are the good girls that, that put their brakes on and, and pull off to the side of the road when they see a turtle and carry it off to the side so it doesn't get hit. You know, they volunteer at the food bank. You and I know some non-Christians that are good girls like that. And, and, and to our shame, there are some non-Christians that just seem to be better girls than we are. They're genuinely nice people. And in terms of kindness, they, they just can't be surpassed. They just seem sweet and kind and, and looking out for other people. And yet, apart from the gospel, those good moral girls are hopelessly lost. They're lost for eternity. They are apart from Christ. And those moral good girls who who keep the rules, well, they might be embarrassed or ashamed or or maybe even offended when they hear the news that they're good is not good enough. And the bigger question is, are you ashamed to tell them that truth? Do you hold out on your good girl friend because you're embarrassed to tell them that, that, that you're embarrassed to tell her that she's a sinner and she needs Jesus? Do you love your good girl friend enough to tell her the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you love her enough to share the truth? Some might be offended because the gospel has an exclusive claim. They might respond, well, that's your truth, and this is my truth, and I believe there are many paths to the top of the mountain. And so being labeled intolerant uh, can make us feel uncomfortable or make us feel ashamed of the gospel because that's such a harsh word. No one wants to be labeled intolerant. Um, Some might be ashamed of the gospel because there's just this sense that there shouldn't be something for nothing that anything worth having should cost us something. And certainly in America, we want to earn our way. We want to pay our way. We're taught to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And so there are those that would be ashamed to come to God 
without making some sort of restitution. It should cost me something. I've been bad. I should pay for it. And of course, that mindset misses the whole truth of the gospel, that no matter how much we do or try to pay back or make restitution, our good will never be good enough. Not even Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or the, the, the best good girl that we know in our lives could be good to be good enough to, to ensure forgiveness of sins and peace with God to have eternal life. There are many, many other reasons that we can come up with, but the bottom line, line is that the gospel can, be, can bring shame to us as believers and it can bring shame to non-believers. God's ways can make us uncomfortable. They can make us feel awkward. But the reality is that the gospel asks for, the gospel requires, the gospel demands a response. So for the unbeliever, there are only two possible responses, either salvation or rejection. And, and the, those two responses bring eternal consequences. But the truth for us, the truth for us who know Jesus is our Savior, those of us who know that righteousness is only by faith alone and Christ alone, for us, the woman of God loves the gospel. Our response to the gospel is that we love it. We believe it. We embrace it. We rest in it. We don't have to be worried or fearful about facing a righteous, holy God. We have that peace with God because of the gospel. The woman of God shares the gospel. And, you know, being eager to share it, I think the absolute opposite of being ashamed would be eager to share it. Are we eager to share the gospel? Do we see this as not only good news but the best news? The woman of God proclaims the gospel. She praises God for it. She remembers it. She never allows it to grow stale in her life. The woman of God treasures the gospel. She, she, like Martin Luther, she never gets over it. It should be fresh and new every morning, this amazing, incredible news that the gospel not only saves me, but it sustains me. It enables and empowers me to do and to behave like Laura could never do on her own. I want the gospel to lead out, empowered by the Holy Spirit in all I do. I want God's gospel to be clear in my life. The gospel brings that blessed assurance, that peace, that I'm going to be okay when I get to heaven, that I am going to get to heaven, that God and I are square only because of Jesus' righteousness that's been imputed to me. The gospel brings hope for today and hope for tomorrow. And the woman of God is not ashamed of the gospel. She knows and experiences his power. She knows that it's for all people. The woman of God lives the gospel. If you are a woman of God, it means that you have accepted the good news of the gospel. You have believed. You know that you have been declared righteous by faith in Christ alone. And the gospel brings that sweet, blessed assurance for that day. But how is the gospel changing you? How is it transforming you? How is it growing you on this day, in this life? The gospel's not just for then, it's for now. And as a woman of God, you have a choice. You can choose to allow the gospel to grow you to maturity, to allow you to be useful to the kingdom, to bring God glory, or you can choose to remain that little baby Christian. As we grow up and change day by day physically, may we intentionally and deliberately choose to allow the gospel to change and transform us spiritually. You know, as we wrap up, there are a few questions that I thought maybe this will 
help us with some sort of personal assessment. These aren't intended to be answered out loud or jotted down, just to maybe help you gauge your own spiritual age or maturity. Where are you growing in faith as you live the gospel? So here are just a few questions. And again, this is not an exclusive list and it's not a test. It's not a good girl Christian assessment for us to compare one another. But just as we think about the gospel and how we're appropriating it in our lives, have I been born again? That's what, that's what ushers you into the kingdom. If you have embraced the gospel, you are a new creation. Have you been born again? Am I living with the peace and joy of knowing I have been declared righteous by faith alone? Have I experienced freedom from specific sins? I believe if, if the sweetness and the goodness of the gospel is powerful in your life, you will experience and find victory. Do I love what God loves and do I hate what God hates? Do I share the gospel? The opposite of, of being ashamed would be eager to share it. Do those closest to me know that I am his? Is God's voice the loudest in my life? Do I love God's word? Do I pray? Do I daily ask the Holy Spirit to guide my thoughts and words and actions and attitudes? Ladies, this is just a, a few questions to prompt you to consider where you are in your journey to grow in the gospel. And I actually hope that it messes with you a little bit. I hope that one or more of these questions stirs up your heart and your mind to appropriate the gospel in your life, to know the sweetness and the goodness of the gospel. May we all believe in our hearts and de de declare with Paul that the gospel is righteousness by faith. You know, there are other questions that we could add to this list, and there might be some that you would consider, but I hope that you'll make some time and take some time to ask the Lord to show you where you are living less when he might have more for you because of the power of the gospel. May we all come to the place in our lives that we would declare the truth of the scripture with Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. May we go from this place and live like the righteous women we are because of the sweet, blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. That's good news, ladies. Pray with me. Amen. Lord God Almighty, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. God, may we get it and may we never get over it. May you use this message, the powerful words that Paul penned 2,000 years ago, to stir up our hearts to a greater and deeper and more profound understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it be light to us. May it be sweetness to our hearts. May it guide and direct us. May it never grow stale in our lives. May we be women of God who embrace the gospel and choose to go forth and live the gospel. God always, in all ways, and all for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Ladies, have a great week.